Why am I targeted? Why am I followed? Why am I harassed? Why am I pulled over? Why can I enter into that neighborhood? Why am I less than? You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Mac Leeson. On today's episode, Rebecca Hubbard, who serves as the Director of Outreach, Prevention, and Education for Mental Health Association Oklahoma, is going to be talking with Mark Davis, who serves as the association's Chief Programs Officer. They're going to discuss how the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery have had profound traumatic effects on individuals and families, and especially people in the African-American community. This is why Mental Health Association Oklahoma has launched its free virtual support group via Zoom that is specifically for people dealing with this ongoing crisis in America. That group is facilitated by Carmen Whiteyonick. She is a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional and a non-denominational minister, and she understands the unique needs of people during this time. The Coping with Trauma from Racial Injustice Support and Open Dialogue Group will start at 7 p.m. June 15th. More details are available at mhaok.org forward slash support groups. In addition, I really hope if you are struggling with this crisis right now, call Mental Health Association's Mental Health Assistance Center at 918-585-1213 or 405-943-3700 and you know, get immediate help and support. And the Assistance Center is open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. And you can also contact it via email at info at mhaok.org. Okay, that all being said, let's get this conversation started. The Mental Health Download starts now. So Mark, my first question for you is, can you tell us about when you first heard about this horrific George Floyd tragedy? So I first heard or witnessed the story about Mr. George Floyd. Well, first of all, my my phone kept going off and, you know, I was getting text messages and I was trying to relax at my house. And so I I, I flipped on the news, um, CNN and and I kept seeing these images of these police officers apprehending this uh, gentleman. And then I kind of closer tuned in to kind of see what was going on and cut the volume up. I kind of a knee jerk, not to be insensitive, but I see that type of picture depicted on a fairly regular basis. Too often I see a young African-American man, African-Americans, males, too often there's a, a over a representation of that depiction in our media on a daily basis anyway of black people being on the wrong end of law enforcement and or justice involved. Look at the statistics. And so as I started to pay closer attention to the witnessing of this officer Chauvin with his knee to the back and or trachea of this black male's neck while he's handcuffed on the ground. I, I, I was almost frozen in sadness, sorrow, disbelief, yet not surprised to see that, but still to see such, it, it, it was, I felt fearful for him, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from him, but the level of helplessness and hopelessness he must have felt to be pinned down in such a manner. I, man, I just, 
it, it was one of those things where you grow, you find yourself being lured into closer and closer to your television set and you have a range of emotions and you want to respond, but you can't. And you, you can see almost on a visceral level that there was something just humanely and horribly wrong with that picture. It, it was it was jarring to say the least. It shocked me to a level of paralysis. Like I was almost and have been, I'm still fairly numb, but was just, it was just shocked. And then to hear that he later died with the position that he was in, it wasn't surprising. It was inevitable. I mean, you know, but again, there's too many cases. You, you got the Brianna Taylor case where there was a no knock entry from law enforcement. She got shot, I believe eight times, six to eight times. You got the Ahmad Aubrey case. The gentleman's, you know, he's an avid jogger, basketball player. He's trying to get his workout. He's jogging, jogging through the neighborhood. He is walking into, you know, a house that's being built. He's checking it out. I do that. I live in a fairly brand new neighborhood. I walk through houses all the time just to see the layout and then the floor plan. You know, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I used to drive to other places and didn't do that because I was trying to figure out ideas on how to build my house. So I would go look and get ideas. I, I can't say that I will be doing that anytime soon, you know? So, and then to see him get chased down like wild game and then shot like an animal. Well, I, again, as someone stated, I won't even say an animal because if they had shot a dog like that, and it was witnessed, then they probably would be in jail on some major charges right now. So I won't even say that. The way they killed him was just all out wrong. Okay, Rebecca. So same question for you. Tell me about how you learned about the Floyd tragedy and then walk us through right up until this weekend when your daughter was at a protest and things went very, very wrong. So I remember my very, very first thought was not again, not again. Like, when is this going to stop? And I have been through a range of emotions from completely devastated to angry and everything in between. And my daughters um, have shared about even activities going on overseas to support and try to show our solidarity with people of color. And, and that gets me because I'm very you know, globally minded. So proud of my daughter. She wanted to go to the Black Lives Matter March and actually was going to go with her. And one of my kiddos wasn't feeling well. And she had a group of friends she's going with, so I didn't um, go. And I was kind of a little bit jealous because I really I wanted to be supportive. So when the Black Lives Matter, after they went through the Greenwood section, they neighborhood, they dispersed and different groups went to different neighborhoods. And a large group went up onto 244. And while they were up there, they were just peacefully protesting, saying, we're here, we're standing up for the injustices that are happening. And they were not doing anything. They were not causing any problems. The police were there. They were not interfering with them being on 244 because neither anything illegal nor dangerous was going on until... The crowd parted a little bit and let one car through. And when they came back together, I guess the man in the red truck and the big white horse trailer thought that he should have been able to go through. And he just started going and pushing through the people and rolling over them. And my daughter was just a few feet from a young woman who fell underneath by being hit by the car. He fell, she fell and 
the, my daughter watched the both tires in the trailer go over that young woman and all the people trying to pull her away from it. And it was very traumatizing, I'm, I imagine, for all that witnessed that. Which leads me to my first question, Mark, which is a number of years ago, I was teaching at OSU and I was, I was teaching an undergraduate course and I had a pretty diverse group of people in there. And I had a young African-American man and he, we were talking about racial issues and inequities and challenges. And he started sharing with us some really, I mean, I really loved it. it I learned as much as a professor as I think anybody did as a, as a student. But he shared some things about the culture and what he's experienced growing up. And one of the things he shared was that he's been raised since he was young to be careful, to be mindful, to overly cautious and respectful to authority so that he would stay safe, so that he wouldn't be harmed. And I can remember at that time saying, that ought not to be. I mean, I just thought, wow, I cannot believe that people have to be raised to be fearful of the very people that are supposed to be serving and protecting us. So I would like to ask you, what impact do you think that has on people when they're having to be raised to protect themselves versus feeling that they are being kept safe in their society and their culture? Well, that's, that's a really good question, Dr. Hubbard. You know, you know I, I've had to have, when I was younger, I've had the talk, so that's what they call it, where as a young man, your your mother, father, grandmother comes to you and they give you the discussion or a conversation about, hey, if you get pulled over, you know, highly respectful. We don't get the, you have rights, you get the voice, how you feel. That there will, will get you killed. That doesn't, that doesn't work in the black community, sadly. And, I, and I, I'm just being frank and, and boldly transparent. I grew up out, for those who don't know me who are listening to this, I grew up in the north side, then moved to the south side, and then lived further, deeper out south. So I've seen and been involved in countless incidents involving being the target, the direct target of racism by individuals that live in the community and by police officers. Some very horrific, traumatizing scenarios that I've been involved in that I've had to be a witness to and and it's and it's really sad but as a young black man and and, and you people black people across america unfortunately it's sad but we've had to understand that because being black you know unfortunately can equate to a death sentence and that's sad the color of your skin you know and and if you're not careful you know it, it could be very very problematic and so Oftentimes, or more times than not, African-Americans, black folks, we, we, we've had to learn how to navigate in a society that has utilized discriminatory practices, laws, institutionalized racism from, you know, from a federal level, governmental level, all the way down to a local, uh, state, uh, county, and city levels. You, you name it from the, from the beginning of, of time, almost seemingly. So, yeah, it, it is impactful because you hear about, you know, generational senses of racism and, and, and poverty and just the impact that that has on your psyche as far as your self-worth. When, when uh, minorities start to in internalize uh, a secondary, a sense of being a secondary citizen, 
or mm-hmm. sense that their 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 voices don't matter or their rights don't matter or they somehow see themselves as you know less valued than their white counterparts so yeah to answer your question to have to constantly be bombarded with not only messages that you're secondary tertiary citizen in society but then being treated and discriminated against openly in society and then when there are no consequences for those violators those those racist individuals who are exercising these these racial these racist and prejudicial practices when there is no consequences and i'm going to say in this particular case since we're having this conversation we're going to talk about police officers and I'm talking about uh, oh, police officers, particularly white police officers who target and or profile unarmed, non-threatening, non-violent African-Americans, whether male or female. Uh, that's a problem. You know, the George Floyd case, I want to come back to that. As I said in the conversation earlier, I don't care if it was an Asian man that had his head pinned to the ground. I don't care if it was a Vietnamese man, uh, an Hispanic man, or a white man. On a on a very fundamental humanitarian level, uh, we're, the the goal is to have love, appreciation, and and value and respect for all of our brothers and sisters. That is wrong. As a society, we should all see a great deal of disgust and disdain in what we all witnessed on national TV. And for too, too often, you see officers like this. And again, I do want to point out that we're not saying, and I'm definitely not saying, that all officers are bad. Let's get that out there right now. Uh, there's a lot of amazing officers. I have great friends who are on the Tulsa Police Department, everybody from the, the, the chief down. I have a lot of good friends that I've worked with for 20, 25 years. So we're not saying that all police officers. We're not labeling an entire industry here. We're saying you do have certain individuals, bad apples, that too often can create cultures of discrimination and and, and start to target certain groups of people. And that culture of catch on, you know, and it's 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 you know it's different in different states and different places. It varies. But we do know that on average, I think well, it's fair to say that we do know that we have problems from a, from a policy practice. Let's go there. Woven throughout these systems across America, we have these issues and policy and how convictions are followed through with or not followed through with. Mm-hmm. Too often these, these laws are set up to protect you know, law enforcement as opposed to holding them accountable. Again, if, as I said, if the three of us were out somewhere and you were committing a crime and you had someone in a chokehold and, and you uh, inadvertently killed them, then, then you and I and the other person on this call, we would, all, we would be held as accessories. So for this officer who was the, the direct perpetrator, uh, Officer Chauvin and, and to his three cohorts, they all committed the murder in my eyes. And again, this is not a unique case. We can go, you know, again, when seeing this Floyd case, I started to just kind of read up on other cases that I'd already been familiar with. And so I went back and looked at the, the Trayvon uh, case, Trayvon Martin. I went and looked at the uh, Philando Castillo case. I went back and looked at several of the cases 
I mean, and again, you got situations where unarmed men are running away from black men are running away from uh, police officers and get shot in the back. You got the one case in, uh, I think it was uh, Florida, where the, the, the licensed therapist went to check on his client who was in the road and, and four officers came out there and this, the black man, he laid on his back with his hands in the air and they still shot him. Sadly, you got the case where the police officer, the female police officer went to the, walked into the, uh, the black man's apartment and killed him. And many of these cases, they get acquitted. And if they don't get acquitted, many of them, they get a slap on the wrist. Uh, hence yeah. the latter case I just spoke of. So yeah, it, it creates a, a very, having to hear that message, uh, Rebecca, as a, as a young man, it creates a mentality of what's wrong with me? What, what did I do? Why me? Why am I targeted? Why am I followed? Why am I harassed? Why am I pulled over? Uh, why can't I enter into that neighborhood? Why am I less than? I can't imagine because I have, I have white privilege, you know, and so I have to rely on you and my other friends to help me understand it. You know, I listen to you talk and I'm thinking, you know, the thing that I think is really rocking my world and probably a lot of others is that this complete lack of humanity as if a large section of us seem to, or some section of us seem to have lost their humanity toward others. You know, their, their just ability to just be kind or just be, just be neutral even, right? And so I want to look to you because I know that you probably, well, obviously, you've been dealing with this your whole life. You've been dealing with this factor of people who do not understand that we are all human. We, are, we all bleed the same red blood. We all live on the same planet together. We all have dreams and aspirations. We all have hurts and trials. And yet some can't seem to see that. And you've been, you know, very keenly aware of that your whole life where I'm just kind of with just the one after another after another coming to this place of this broad feeling of like what has happened to humanity right yeah. so I would like to ask when we're feeling that way because it's kind of a two-pronged question one when we're feeling what has happened to humanity I love your advice on how to deal with that feeling mm. and then two I well, I'll save the second question. I'll let you take that one first. So, you know, when I hear that, I think it's, well, you, you said a couple of really important key things. It's fascinating. Well, some people, whether you're, if you're not, if you're not a minority, you can look at, say that again, I'm going to go back to Mr. George Floyd case, because mm -hmm. to me, that's like, as one, as was said to, I uh, heard the other day, hey, we all have eyes when it comes to that one. <laughs> like we, we all have eyes. You, you can argue some of the other situations that were gray. You can try to justify, you can try to pitch an opposing stance on maybe why this black man was shot. You, you can do that maybe over here. Now you, you got a, a man face down handcuffed who is not resisting. Now I, I, I don't know if I have time for that level of ignorance. If someone, if someone tries to argue that, I'll just say that. So most of us, can look at a situation like that and say, wow, that was wrong, right. regardless of color. Now, there's some individuals that look at that and still may not even see an issue with that, sadly. Yeah. 
but with the with, but with some of the racism that we see that that takes place, and that is, and then there, and there, there's no consequence for it. There's no real recourse or no real relief or justice served. You you know that some people still have a lot of work to do. They have yeah. a lot of work to do on themselves. Yeah. And I think the first thing is I'll start by telling you a quick story here. I rem it was a while back. I was a part of a group. I won't mention the group. But we were having some open just discussion about the race massacre that occurred. And there was a facilitator and one section of the group started to try to kind of explain away why this massacre was taking place. They were trying, in a sense, they were, they were pitching opposing points and stances as to maybe, you know, and so I listened to it for a while. For those that know me, I'm a pretty laid back, calm and, and, and cool fella. And I, and I listened to it and, I, and it got to the point to where, and I hated that I had to go here, but I knew I had to make a real, the, the, the statement I had to make, it had to be solid and impactful. <laughs> so I stood up in front of everybody, 100 people. And I said, look, you all are making these opposing statements about these 300 plus African-American people who were living independently on Black Wall Street that died, the ones that died. And that's just the ones that they had a rough count for. It could have been twice that. I said, you all, and this is predominantly white. I said, if this was 300, 400 white people where a black mob came down and murdered kids, white children and kids and women, I said, this would not be a conversation. We would not be having this conversation. You all would not be having this conversation. Right. Yep. They stopped in cold silence because I let them think about that for a while. So when I painted that picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl dead and or family or mother clutching her kid, when I did that, I learned a few techniques from our CEO, Mike Bro. Sometimes he'll say, ask me, what, how do you feel if that was your child? And so that's what I did. And, and it got their attention. It got their attention. Now, for those who don't know me that are listening to this, yes, I am a, a six foot five, very handsome African-American man. I have a beautiful white wife. So just, just, just for those who may be think that I have some type of racist bone in my body or a, a vendetta that I'm trying to get back at uh, the other race. No, that's not it at all. My aunts look like Rebecca Hubbard here. Uh, <laughs> I have a very diverse family. Uh, my mother is Native American. She's Creek Indian. So I've kind of had some historical trauma on both sides, man. I'm still standing here. So to answer your question, that's a long way around of how do we get people to understand. Sometimes we got to try to get them yeah. To if they will envision this. Imagine if this was you, though. Yeah. When you make it real to people, when they can smell it, when they can touch it, when they can feel the pain, when they can feel it, when it's their blood, when it's their body, when it's their family, then it's different. Yeah. I've seen very, I, I've seen racist families before, and then they have a grandchild who's mixed, and they love that little beautiful little olive skin, blue eyed little girl. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like it, it changes, 
it changes how you view the world. When, when it's your blood, when it's your family, when it's your, when it's your soul, then that can, try, that can sometimes change. And that's why I try to get to people. I try to make it real for them so that they can see. And, that, that, and, 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 if, this, and if this was easy, then we wouldn't be dealing with the, you know, this global, you know, this, this racism that we have here in our community. And the reality of it is Dr. Robin D'Angelo, she said it really great in her, in her book. She says, you know, having racial or prejudicial kind of uh, uh, narratives that circulate through your head, that's, that's okay. That, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we all have that. I have prejudices. I have probably, you know, discriminatory thoughts that we all have. It. That's just, this is America. Uh, D'Angelo, Dr. D'Angelo said, racism is like a torrential rain shower that poured down on us all. If you live in America, You've been around it. You've heard it. You've heard people being called out of their names. You've, you've heard people or you witness someone get treated poorly or wrongfully. You have. And especially if you're white, you definitely have. It's, it's happened. And that's not an issue with that because we all have it. It's your responsibility to wake up every day and challenge that inner narrative and kill that out every day to be a better person. It's your responsibility to come to terms with how, you know, that experience and what you witnessed early on in your life, uh, how that's impacted you and, and to, to take a handle on those experiences and, and turn those negative, discriminatory and prejudicial narratives and change those to, to more positive ones that are more embracing of other cultures and other people who don't look like you. And I would add to that, you know, that it's our responsibility as parents to raise our kids to be mindful and to fight against any prejudices we, they may naturally innately have or, or uh, take on as they grow and develop, or to have those difficult conversations with our friends, our siblings, our parents, you know, and say, man, I, no, I, I hear what you're saying, but, and kind of turn it around. I've had those hard conversations. I think as much, you know, it's such a systemic issue. And I think as much as African-American young men and women have had to have the talk and be raised in a place of fear, we as, as people that are not of color or not African-American, it's our responsibility to raise our kids that they would be inclusive and loving and accepting and supportive. And that's exactly what that protest was about. It was about standing together because this has to stop. It's a systemic issue. We need a broad swath of people saying enough is enough. It has to change. And you said it best in a conversation we had earlier today because you said, you know, our parents were just kind of kind of in this overwhelmed with it all. But the young ones are like, enough is enough. And I think we need to listen out, out of the mouths of babes. I think we need to listen to the younger generations that are saying enough is enough because they're seeing the diversity and they're understanding the value of diversity rather than seeing it as a threat. And so I think even even for not only as an individual, but as an individual in your relationships, encouraging others. So I want to, I want to say something too, just, and you said something really important and I believe this to be true. I had a friend the other day, they said that they were out on their porch and this is in Oklahoma city. And the, the ball, the, the little kid from across the street, their ball came over and they, it rolled over into the, this, this African-American family yard and 
they grabbed the gave the ball back to the kid who was visiting, and he turned around and told him, "Don't touch the damn ball, you in and you n word." This is a five six year old boy. Oh my gosh! And this is you know a mother, father, and two two of their kids. And so, to your point earlier, yes, it, it's as incumbent on black African American parents to talk to their kids about safety uh, and how to take care of themselves uh, while out in the communities in which they live. But it's critically and tremendously important for our white brothers and sisters to have the conversation about togetherness and unity in the community, us as humanity and being a voice and supporting one another. And as I said earlier too, I seen a sign, I loved it on the news of the day. It said, I said, uh, white silence uh, can't equate to black violence. You know, in other words, let's speak out in support of, of Black Lives Matter for, for the, you know, for the betterment of all people, you know, rising waters float all boats. We have to ba- have equality and justice for all, or it does start to question whether or not we'll ever truly have any peace. And so it just, we, we've got to work on that collectively. It can't, it's, it, black people just can't do it themselves. It has to be everybody from, from uh, our administration on down. That's a whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. One last question. So recently read well in the book, Just Mercy, and was made into a movie. And I watched it and that young black lawyer that went down there and um and took care of what needed to be taken care of. And it's such an incredibly inspiring story. And I I I look at someone like that and I think I want to be that person. You know, I want to make that kind of difference. And, and in talking to my, my kiddos about, you know, how to best advocate and support our black and brown brothers and sisters, I've told them, you know, we have to figure out and we have to ask, what do you need us to be? What do you need us to be? And so I know I've kind of asked that question, but just really pointedly, if I came to you and I said, what do you, as my, as your friend, what do you need me to be? What would you say? The protests, you know, downtown and across the the, uh, country, I think that's all great. Again, I think we can do without the violence. We can do without the the property damage, the vandalism. You know, that that needs to not take place. The protesting, you know, out in the communities, peaceful protesting, I think is great. But I think what we need is real support to challenge our precincts and our law enforcement sheriffs and our chiefs across the country, policy change on a federal administrative level to embrace policies that really focus on equality and equal rights for all, and to continue to be a voice and to challenge injustices when they happen. Because when we just sit by and say, well, you know what, I see that that happened on TV. That's not my family members or friends or he's black, so he can't even be related to me. Uh, so it's really not anything I need to worry about. Uh, that's the wrong. The, the visceral response should be the exact opposite. It should be, how do, who do I need to call? Do, do I have a, a state representative that I know? And we need to vote. We, we have to put our elective officials in, in office. We can put them in there. We can take them out. We have the power to do that. You know, there's a lot of people who really wait, they have to be honest with themselves. Do we really want to make a positive change for the betterment of all? Or do we want to protect the status quo because we have a vested interest uh, in the current power structure? 
You know, we, right. we have to really get honest with ourselves because as it stands now, I don't know if we're ever going to have really any real peace across the country if we don't have equality. You, you That has to be the soil for which we all grow and become better people as human beings. So, Mark, as we wrap up, I want people to know that you're overseeing the Zero Mental Health Symposium Healing from Historical Trauma conference coming up this fall. All the details at zerosymposium.org. So just tell people why you would encourage them to attend the Zero Mental Health Symposium. Wow. We knew that it was timely of a topic and a theme. However, with the current state of, of our world and where we're at, with the level of discriminatory and, and racist and prejudicial things that we're seeing uh, on the news and the media across the country, it, it, now it could never be more so important now that we have an educational symposium that really highlights what changes that need to take place in today's time. Right now, with the symposium, we're really focusing on, you know, the the individuals, whether you're Native American, African American, the Jewish population, Asian population. I mean, we're we're looking at traumas that have been experienced over our over the past 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, and how do we as a, as an agency, as a community, how do we come together and try to implement a cultural competency when we're working with the individuals who have generational traumas that they're trying to deal with? Uh, there's a youth uh, component with the adverse childhood experiences where we're looking at the impact of trauma on children and the families as a unit. I feel like we all need to be there because if we are truly social workers or individuals who are in the helping field, you have to have the tools in order to properly and effectively help someone and not hurt someone. So that's what this symposium is about. It's about creating and having an environment where people are educated and given the proper tools, the most updated evidence-based practice tools to utilize when people walk into your office and they're dealing with various levels of traumatization and mental health challenges and emotional issues. And so this year is going to be very, very powerful. Uh, We got a host of amazing keynote speakers as well as our breakout presenters to address the various topics that I just mentioned. And so it's going to be a a, a can't miss. Okay, Mark, as we do at the end of every episode, We ask our guests to share a bit of wisdom and then close us out with our rallying cry, which is be a part and go do good things. So Mark, take it away. Uh, Whatever your, you know, your spiritual beliefs are, you know, faith is critically important. Your uh, family and regardless of color, race, creed, religion, we're all uh, connected and tied together in some way and, and considered family. I consider you all as my family and our close friends. So we all need each other at some point in time, embrace one another, go be a part of something great, and go do good things.